A friend of mine from what seems like a lifetime ago, but it's probably really only just 20 years, sent me this comment on the last episode. And uh, this is someone who's deeply steeped in some of the traditions that are discussed on this podcast from time to time. For those of you who are just listening, there is a video of this with some helpful um, diagrams on the YouTube channel, a link for which will be provided in the show note description, but I will try to describe everything so that those of you just listening will be able to keep a pace. So the comment is, while listening to this episode, the last episode, Babylonian speech impediment, while listening to this episode, this came to mind. With your mind, know 10,000 things. With your heart, feel only one reality. Now, 10,000 things is a, a term that's often used that describes the world of phenomena. And it's a Taoist shorthand, you could say. Myriad things is another way that it's translated sometimes. It has to do with the complexity of the world. And here, there's this idea that, that we can appreciate or perceive, perhaps, is a more neutral term. We can perceive the manifold things occurring and keep our sacred ground, keep a single root here in the heart. It's a great reminder of a way of viewing the practice, but it also brings up a lot of, it brings up a set of issues that are perhaps a bit more complicated than is typically considered. There's a concept in Chinese philosophy called heart-mind. And, and that's one of the things that I'd like to, to look into here. Because the idea of the mind and the heart as being separate entities, on some level there's a very real truth to that. But within the ideal of the practice, the merging of the heart and mind into one, in essence, is a very fundamental concept. So I don't want to lose sight of the fundamental intent of the comment, which I think is very true. But on the other hand, I do want to dissect it a bit and, and take a look at some of the issues surrounding it that are, well, that involve a fair amount of thought. So we have this question of what, what is meant by heart-mind. There's, uh, there's a lot of different ways of viewing that. I found one quote from Bruce Francis, who's someone that I typically don't really agree with a lot, but he does have some things of value to offer, and this is not a bad way of summarizing it, so I'll read the quote. He says that, In Chinese thought, the heart-mind is the center of consciousness in the body, located in the center of the chest next to the physical heart. 
Here, rational intellectual thoughts and what we call the emotional feelings of the heart are one. In the heart-mind, there is no schism between the talking head and heartfelt wisdom. The heart-mind is what makes human beings more than just jumbled emotions or biological thinking machines. So, clearly, there is a different function that's being referred to when we talk about the mind versus the heart. And one traditional way of thinking of this is the concept of the Dantian. So, in Chinese philosophy, in Chinese uh, physiology, if you like, in Chinese medicine, um, and in the martial arts, and in meditation practices, there are these three Dantian, which is sometimes translated as field of elixir. It's essentially a, a point around which a field is defined. There is the upper Dantian, the middle Dantian, and the lower Dantian. And what I'm going to say is that the upper Dantian is associated with the mind, the middle Dantian is associated with the heart, and the lower Dantian is associated with the, the physical body. It's like the center of, of gravity of the body. And they each have a specific location, and they have a set of relationships. Now, you can think of each of these as a, a center of energy. So we have this mental energy, the, the capacity of the mind to cogitate, to think. We have this emotional center that we all refer to as being in the region of the heart. Now, some people say it's really more the solar plexus, but nevertheless, traditionally, we have both in the East and the West this idea of a a center of energy here in the heart. And then we also have like the gut feeling in, uh, in the West. And it's been recognized recently that there are essentially um, bundles of nerve cells in both the heart and the gut that are essentially elemental brains. And so you can say that in a way there are these three fundamental locations of consciousness. It's almost as if we're built of these three different conscious organizations. And in some ways you can see that in uh, human anatomy. So if you take a look, for instance, at the nervous system, you, it's very obvious that you have this center in the upper Dantian, in the brain, if you like, that uh, distributes itself throughout the body with the, the, the various nerves, right? And then uh, the middle Dantian is essentially the circulatory system. So the heart is the, is the center of that, and it distributes itself throughout the body in the form of, uh, of veins and... Uh, uh, arteries. And then the lower Dantian, you know, maybe this is not exactly the right way of, of describing it. I have a number of ways of thinking of this, uh, but, you know, I'm going to say for the purposes of this discussion that it's kind of describing the musculoskeletal system. It's like the meat of the body. It's, it's essentially all the things that are being regulated by the nervous system and the circulatory system. 
So it's all of the cells that are that have to be coordinated and supplied with nutrition. So essentially what we have is a nervous system which controls information and a circulatory system which controls nutrition. Obviously, if you have three different kind of loci of of consciousness and they're all operating in the same body, for them to come into agreement is extremely important. So you ideally want to see real unity between these different centers. And one of the things that's very interesting is that part of the concept of the heart-mind is it's being put to the purpose of what's called the microcosmic orbit, which is essentially placing the heart-mind down into the lower Dantian. So you're taking the unity of the upper and the middle Dantian and you're focusing it down into the lower Dantian. So this suggests, going back to our original comment here, that really you want the heart-mind to be able to, as a unit, handle the, let's say, manifold 10,000 things, the world of phenomena, the postnatal, if you like. So, you know, you can say that basically the postnatal is a representation of a mind contending with the world, right, with phenomena, and that the prenatal is a mind that uh, transcends phenomena and finds balance and unity. And that in some way or another, we have to keep a foot in both worlds if we're going to continue to live in this world. And so there's a, there's a certain amount of tension there, obviously. It's, it ain't easy. Uh, but the, the practice is to find equanimity even while in the midst of the turmoil of the postnatal. And this, this brings me to one of the other questions that I have regarding this concept. So the aspect of the, the, uh, of the heart feeling only one reality. The question is, what is the nature of that reality? What is the feeling of this reality? What, what are we feeling if we're able to uh, embody the practice? You know, not necessarily what one would think. There's, there's an interesting passage in Patanjali, uh, section 2.15. There's two different translations I have. One of them reads, All is misery to the wise because of the pains of change, anxiety, and purificatory acts. And it's translated by someone else, Johnson, as follows, To him who possesses discernment, all personal life is misery, because it ever waxes and wanes, is ever afflicted with restlessness, makes ever new dynamic impresses in the mind, 
and because all its activities war with each other. You could say that this is the reality uh, described by Patanjali of the wise in reference to the 10,000 things. And the state of mind, the feeling of it, is not a pleasant one. You know, there's this idea in kind of New Age circles, you could say, that enlightenment or that the meditation practices or spiritual practices will lead one to a, a place of serenity and peace. And, of course, there is some truth to that. Uh, certainly with respect to the, let's say, prenatal state of being, where one has been able to achieve the balancing of the thought objects and the neutralization of them so that you're able to um, embody a receptive state. This is precisely what is described in the first section of Patanjali where techniques are given in great detail as to how to bring the mind to rest. And that technique is to ponder on the opposites, to neutralize the fluctuations in the mind. I'm pointing to the all-yin trigram earth here in the root position of the prenatal, which is the gate. They call it the yellow woman in Taoist alchemy. Uh, that allows one to enter the prenatal. And I would say that this is essentially equivalent to love of God. Because you're talking about a relationship with something that's beyond your knowing. The Tao that can be known, the Tao that can be named, is not the eternal Tao. You're in relationship with something far greater than yourself, far greater than your capacity to understand, and it does bring about a sense of very deep peace and, and love. But then you have to chop wood and carry water. You return to the postnatal, the world of 10,000 things. And according to Patanjali, uh, this is not a pleasant place for someone of wisdom. There is a way in which you could say like the old soul who has gone through the process of spiritual development, some would say over the course of lifetimes, resolving karma if you like, that you become weary, like an old soul gets tired. You become weary of the way of the world. Now, weariness and, and your own sense of misery in having to deal with the world uh, is far better than anger. It's far better than hatred and violence. So, you know, you could say that there are definite improvements to one's relationship with the world from this spiritual perspective, but that it's not necessarily a happy place to be. You know, I think that Quite often, people want to put rose-colored glasses on this whole thing. But it reminds me very much of the, the story of people who have 
uh, gone on a pilgrimage to find the sages hidden in the mountains who meditate in a cave and who, upon discovering, scold the pilgrim and tell them that this is the last thing they want. They don't want to sit in a cave and meditate. There, there is no joy in that life. So uh, what I get from this is that we're, the real challenge here is to avoid delusion when it comes to enlightenment. To not try to feel differently than we do. To not pretend that we feel differently than we do. To delve into a deeper sense of what we feel without getting absorbed by it. Without it overtaking us. So to have the feeling there without having it rule our lives. Because you can't pretend your way out of this thing. You can't make it into what you want it to be. You can't like shoot for this ideal of enlightenment uh, as you would with other goals. You could also make the argument that goals in general have a tendency to, uh, on some fundamental level, elude us. I'm sure that there are some who would disagree with that, but it seems that quite often uh, when we think we got somewhere, it turns out not to be the place that we thought we were going. But again, that I think maybe is debatable. Uh, maybe there are different types of lives lived somewhere uh, people actually get to where they thought they were going. It's awfully hard to say. Some people report that they've gotten to where they thought they were going. Um, I usually find that to be somewhat unbelievable, but who can really judge where people are at? It does seem that quite often inconsistencies and hypocrisies pop up when people make claims like that. But again, difficult to say with any real certainty here. The, the basic idea that, that I think is worth emphasizing is that attachment to equanimity is also a problem. So you have the gunas in the Vedic tradition or the uh, Hindu tradition, uh, which are the material modes of nature. So you have uh, rajas, tamas, and sattva. And rajas is desire, so it's a very natural thing to get wrapped up in desire. Thomas is ignorance, so it's a very natural thing to be unaware of a variety of things that might be significant, are definitely significant. We're always going to be unaware of something that's significant. It's a basic fact of existence. And then sattva, where in essence, the urge towards enlightenment, towards becoming better, improving your life, the sort of self-improvement movement <laughs> in, its, in its most ancient form, a rarefied sense of what's possible in life, is itself a kind of material mode of nature. And like part of the material mode of nature is the desire for us to transcend it. And that desire is in of itself a problem. Because what is, is. And so trying to behave in a way where we're so 
pure as to not be of this world, well, okay, then you're not of this world. Right? So we have ideas and imaginings of what is possible in the realm of enlightenment that are perhaps another path towards darkness, you could say. So this is the thing that I'm concerned with. Spirituality seems like it's all a beautiful thing. Just follow the path and you'll get there, right? But there are hazards along the way. And it's serious stuff, and it's worth thinking about deeply. Now, maybe there are some who are able to tune into a kind of eternal state of bliss. That's certainly something that's reported in some of the ancient scriptures, and some people claim to experience that in their own practices. And I see glimpses of that from time to time, when uh, in certain mind states, without a doubt. I'm unable to remain there. Now, I, I don't know if that's because of my own lack of discipline, or if it's just the reality that you know, the yin convergence comes no matter what you do eventually. So yin convergence is another uh, term in Taoism that refers to the return to 10,000 things, the return to the day-to-day, the, the chop wood, carry water, deal with all the bullshit, right? So it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to contemplate. So, you know, when, when we are considering these issues, you know, quite often people are motivated by the sense that somehow or another all of this is going to make everything so much better. But that is really what the, the phrase, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water, after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water, it kind of says, well, <laughs> don't get your hopes up. You know, there is a basic, uh, you know, life consists of certain things. And, you know, for instance, like if you have health issues, you may be able to achieve a state of enlightenment and yet still suffer with the same pains, the aches and pains of the reality of your condition, of your physical condition, which, you know, as you get older, of course, is likely to get worse. And yet there are great sages who, in the midst of crippling pain, have done wonderful things, have uh, been able to transcend the conditions of their lives because of their understanding, because they developed an understanding of it and a relationship with it and a way of not taking any of it personally. You know, the difference between the chop wood and carry water before enlightenment and the chop wood of carry and carry water after enlightenment is really just the extent to which you're taking the whole situation personally, as if it were somehow or another against you personally. Because you can go through life feeling as if everything is against you and that it's just a tremendously unfair situation. And quite often it is. Quite often uh, we are placed up against odds that are pretty lousy and it is outrageously unfair the way things play themselves out and the way some people get treated and the way other people get treated. No doubt about it. 
But there's nothing about that that makes taking it personally a good strategy for dealing with, with things. And certainly when it comes to the state that you're experiencing as you're having to chop wood and carry water, it's far better to recognize the kind of baseline reality of things without getting emotionally perturbed, which leads us back to the beginning of this comment, because with your heart, feel only one reality. There's very deep truth to that. And it does come down to the emotional thing, because if you can have things happen in your mind, all these various impressions, all of the the signs and the signals and the connections and the storylines that happen inside of the mind, and have that not disturb you emotionally, that is really a step towards the formation of the heart-mind, where it's no longer warring. Because if you're, if you're getting emotionally upset as a result of the things that you're perceiving, then in essence there's a war happening between your upper and lower and middle Dantian. And that war inside of yourself is going to cause difficulty, excess difficulty, more difficulty than the difficulty that you find yourself in, just as a matter of circumstance. And so coming into relationship with that middle Dantian, with the heart, and recognizing that although it gives you important messages about what's happening, it's not telling you the truth about everything. Emotional reactions are not telling you the truth about everything. And understanding that and being able to kind of have a seat inside of the sadness of the world without that sadness crushing you, you know, with more of a sense of love and acceptance. That seems like uh, that seems like an improvement of the overall set of relationships inside of ourselves. You know, how do we stop ourselves from destroying ourselves? I guess you could say is is part of the question here. One of the things that I found interesting when I was thinking about this, I noticed that Patanjali, there's a passage here. Let's just, I'm just going to read these sections for you. This is Patanjali section 2.41. Giovanni writes his translation, As a result of contentment, there is purity of mind, one-pointedness, control of the senses, and fitness for the vision of the self. Johnson, he translates this, To the pure of heart come also a quiet spirit, one-pointed thought, the victory over sensuality, and fitness to behold the soul. This is fascinating because Giovanni translates it as mind and Johnson translates it as heart. So this points to the fact that in Sanskrit, the heart-mind is probably a elemental concept. So it really is this relationship between the upper and middle Dantian, between the mind and the heart. And if we, can, if we can get those two warring worlds within us to come to some kind of basic agreement, 
And I'm going to say that that agreement is best accomplished with the techniques described in Patanjali in the first section, which is essentially the neutralization of thought, which is totally analogous with the Taoist gold elixir, which I believe is encoded within the prenatal Bagua arrangement. And the gate, once again, is that receptive state represented by the earth trigram, which is all yin, at the root of the prenatal arrangement. That is where it all begins. And so the neutralization of thought objects helps to calm the emotion. It calms everything. Everything settles down. If you can get the mind to just stop, just stop for a while. Yes, it will later appreciate the 10,000 things. But in this practice, for now, you're finding the neutral zone so that you can get to a state of balance. You can find of you can kind of like tune the instrument to zero, adjust the bias, which means no bias. You don't want it to be biased to one side or the other. Right in the center where there's nothing is the place of receptivity. And so you neutralize the thoughts as they arise and gradually, gradually, gradually you find the center where there's real peace in the mind. And when the mind is peaceful, the heart calms down. So if you can find that place, then you have a place you can return to. And if you can return to it, then you can strengthen your capacity to get there under less than ideal conditions. Initially, it requires quiet, removal of distraction, getting away from the drama of various social situations, of the pressures of work, whatever it is. But then later, because you're familiar with that place, you can return to it in the midst of things. You know how to get there. And my belief is that this can really be very helpful in dealing with what would otherwise be extraordinarily trying circumstances. And it's still going to be difficult. And I, I believe that this, this section of Patanjali that describes that, you know, all is misery to the wise... To him who possesses discernment, all personal life is misery, because it ever waxes and wanes, is ever afflicted with restlessness, makes ever new dynamic, impresses in the mind, and because all its activities war with each other. You know, I, I originally thought that I preferred Giovanni uh, translation of Patanjali, but I find now that there's something about Johnson's translation that is perhaps more penetrating. So I think this covers most of what I wanted to say. I hope you found it interesting, and uh, of course, I am always interested to hear what people have to say about these little discussions that I come up with here. If you find this of value in your own life, I hope you'll consider sharing it with others who you think may also find it of value. If you would like to keep up to date with the various stuff that I'm doing, please sign up at taijireality.substack.com and uh, if you'd like to materially support this effort you can do so at the Substack or you can go to patreon.com slash taijireality that's about all for now 
Uh, we'll see what happens next. Adios.